Well, hey, and welcome to the Quad City Podcast, where we are on mission to make more and better disciples of Jesus everywhere, always. We're so glad you're joining us in that today. Well, before we dive into today's sermon, would you do me a quick favor? Would you go ahead and open your app store and search Quad City Christian Church? Download our app because it's the best way to stay connected with what's happening here at Quad City. If you're new, joining us for the first time, click that new here form as we'd love to reach out and connect with you. You can also submit prayer requests and even give on that same app. It's the best way to stay connected here at Quad City. Well, hey, now that that's out of the way, let's go ahead and dive into our sermon from Sunday. We hope you enjoy. My name is Jason. I'm one of the pastors here. We are honored that you've chosen to start your week off by worshiping with us here at Quad City Christian Church. I want to welcome all of those who are online and all of those worshiping with us in Prescott Valley. We are so grateful to have you with us today. If you have your Bibles, let's go ahead and join uh, one another there in Romans chapter 9. If you are a newcomer with us, we have been working our way through the book of the Bible called Romans. We've been in it for about six months, uh, and we'll still go through about June. So you're about halfway in, um, and we're glad that you're jumping in with us today. Uh, if you've been with us from the beginning, I want to remind you of a, an outline of the book of Romans that I shared with you at the beginning uh, I shared that I would tell you when we're making some transition. So I want to remind you of this. At the very beginning, the first 17 verses is the introduction to the book of Romans. This is Paul introducing himself because he'd never been to the church in Rome. And so he's writing them because he wants them to understand the gospel. And so he's like, hey, you, you know me. I don't really know you, but I, well, I'm hoping to come see you soon. So that was kind of the intro. And then we jump into the first section that we called the bad news. Anytime you share the gospel, you always have to start with the bad news. We have to start with the realization of who we are outside of Jesus. And so that's where Paul starts. And for those of you who endured those days, then you realize it was worse than you thought. Like that was what Paul wanted to to let us know. That no matter how bad you think it is, you're worse than you thought. And so that was the bad news. So we spent a couple of months telling you how bad you are. Which my hope is then we get to the good news. All of a sudden, the good news becomes even more glorious. Because when you realize how bad you are, the fact that Jesus would die in your place and for your sin, that he would take you into himself, that you would be uh, a co-heir with Christ because of him. Like, it just becomes so amazing. It blows your mind. Like, that was the next section. So that's chapters 4 through 8. And we wrapped up chapter 8 last weekend, which is kind of the crescendo of the good news. And today we are making the transition to this section here, and we've called this section the hard news. And it's hard for a few reasons. It's hard because for many people, it's really hard to understand. It's hard because to the people he's talking about throughout this section, this would have been hard for them to imagine that what he's saying is true. 
For those who he's talking to, meaning the church in Rome, um, this would have been really hard to hear. It's one of the most debated and discussed and often divisive sections in the entire Bible. And frankly, it's one of the biggest reasons I didn't want to teach on the book of Romans. Like, legit. I just wanted to skip this whole thing. Scholars and theologians, really smart people with lots of letters behind their names, have been discussing this section of Scripture for hundreds of years, and they've fallen in lots of different variations of what they think it means. And I'm not that smart, and I have no letters behind my name. So I know that I'm not going to be able to lay this out in a way that's clear for everybody and sign the whole thing, like give it to you, signed, sealed, delivered. It's just not going to work, okay? I, I'm just not that smart. There are people in this room who see this text differently than me. There are people on our staff who see this text differently than me. One of our core values, though, is that we teach the Bible. And that's what I'm going to try to do to the best of my ability. And one of the things that I always try to do when I'm teaching the Bible is I always want to get my theology from the text. I never want to bring my theology to the text. I want it to speak and me to hear, not for me to try to tell it what to say. And so that's what I'm going to try to do to the best of my ability today. So I'm going to work hard to show you what I see in this section my hopes is that you will at least see where I'm coming from, even if you don't agree with my conclusions. But if I'm being honest, again, everything in me wants just to skip this whole section. And frankly, I think it would be really easy to just skip it. In fact, I think the book of Romans would be just fine without this section whatsoever. Like you just leave the whole thing out. Let me show you what I mean. Like you get chapter 8, and here's this great crescendo, right? I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth or anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. And the whole church would have applauded, right? This is the exciting stuff. So imagine going from this crescendo moment of the promises of God and jumping straight to Romans 12, which says, Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to him. This is your spiritual act of worship. Like, that makes perfect sense to me. To go from 8 to 12, like nothing separates you from the love of Jesus. Therefore, go live in his mercy. Like that'll preach. But instead of going from this great crescendo moment of chapter 8, we dive into the deepest of depths in chapter 9. We have this huge emotional swing in the life of Paul. And the question becomes, okay, so why? Why put this in there? Why do we, why do we need to go there? And I think there's really two reasons. One of them is a practical reason, and the other one is a very personal reason. So let's start with the practical reason. The practical reason is, I just want you to imagine for a moment that you're sitting in the church of Rome, okay? Somebody gets up and they read this letter out loud, and you've just heard the gospel proclaimed in amazing ways over these last eight 
chapters. And again, we hit this crescendo in these great promises of chapter 8. Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who then will condemn? No one. That's right. And who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Our trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? No. And all these things were more than conquerors through him who loved us. And I'm convinced neither death nor life, angels, neighbor, future power, heights, depth, anything else in all creation will ever separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. Like you hear these amazing promises. But as you're sitting there, you're smart. And it dawns on you. Didn't God kind of make these types of promises to the people of Israel? Like, isn't that what the whole Old Testament was about? Like, didn't he say that kind of stuff about the Jewish people first? And you start to look around at the church in Rome and you begin to realize this church is like the the New Testament church is mainly made up of Gentile people. Like, he made all of these promises to the Jewish people I mean, they were the ones who were first called his chosen ones. Didn't God say he loved them more than all of the other peoples on the earth? Didn't God adopt them first? Wasn't he their father first? Weren't they his people first? Didn't God promise they would always be his first? And as you're sitting there and you hear these great promises, something begins to roll in your head and think, then why aren't they here? Why aren't they following Jesus? Why, are, why have they been left out? Why aren't they part of the kingdom? Why aren't they in on this thing? How can I trust that God is going to keep these amazing promises for me if he didn't keep them for the people he made them to first? How can I trust that God is going to keep his promises if he didn't keep them for them? I think that's a very practical reason why we have chapters 9 through 11. Paul's got to answer that question. I think there's also a very personal reason Paul has to address this question. Personal Because when Paul speaks of the nation of Israel, Paul speaks of the Jewish people. He's not just speaking of nameless, faceless people from centuries ago. These are his people. These are his family. These are his literal brothers and sisters. These are his literal countrymen. These are the people he grew up going to synagogue with. These are the people who taught him how to pray. These are the people who shared the word of God with him. These are the people that he, that he celebrated every holiday with. Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur and Passover and Sukkot. Like, like he celebrated these festivals and feasts with these people year after year for his entire life. These are his community. And Paul, being a Jew, looks out at the church. And he begins thinking about these promises and he begins to realize that these people that he knows and that he loves, that he recognizes, that by and large, they're out. They're on the outside looking in when it comes to these promises. 
They've rejected Jesus as their Savior, which means these promises don't apply to them. And it breaks his heart. This is very personal for him. And so we had this this huge emotional swing from this, um, this high moment, this crescendo piece of worship at the end of chapter 8. And it swings from that to what is probably the most somber section of the whole book of Romans. Where he says, I speak the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience confirms it through the Holy Spirit. I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my people, those of my own race, the people of Israel. I want you just to feel the weight of what Paul's saying in this section. I want you to feel it. I want you to think about one or two people maybe that you know who right now are on the outside looking in when it comes to the kingdom of God. That you look at their life and you know that they have rejected Christ as Savior. So in regards to faith, they aren't, they aren't following Jesus. I want you to put one or two names and faces in your mind. Now, instead of just having one or two names and faces, I want you to imagine that you have dozens, even hundreds of names and faces. Like everybody that you went to your family reunions with. Like like all of them. Like all of your brothers and sisters. I want you to imagine all of the most important, influential people in your life fitting into that category. That's what Paul's experiencing. And it haunts him. He says, I have unceasing anguish for them. Like it doesn't stop. It is a pain that never goes away. I know I'm, a gospel, I'm the apostle of the Gentiles and it's great that all of these Gentiles are coming to faith, but it doesn't fill the hole of the fact that my own family, my own people, the ones who share my DNA and my last name, they aren't in. And he's so broken over it. We've probably felt that sorrow on some level in our life for some people, but I want you to see just how far Paul's willing to go to do something about it. Look at what he says. He says, I would trade places with him if I could. For I wish that I myself were cursed and cut off for Christ for the sake of my people. He says, I would trade places. I I would raise my hand. I would volunteer to be cut off from Jesus myself if it meant that they could be saved. Like Paul says, I would cash in my own salvation for them. I would spend eternity in hell cursed and cut off from Jesus if it meant that they could experience life with him. Like, there are a lot of people that you've likely said, I would die for them. I'd die for them. 
Meaning you'd give up your life on earth for them. But how many people are you willing to go to hell for? How many people would you be willing to to cash in your ticket into the kingdom and suffer eternally for? How many people make that list? That's what Paul says he would do for his people. That's the weight that he's carrying. That's an anguish and a love for lost people that most of us have never come close to experience. Now the question becomes, why? Why would the Jewish people, why would the people of Israel, why, why are they out? And the simple answer is because as a nation, as a whole, they're not all Jewish people. There are some, Paul's a Jew and he's in, but on the whole, they've rejected Jesus as their Messiah. And this for Paul is just mind-boggling because it wasn't for lack of opportunity or knowledge. In fact, he says, theirs is the adoption to sonship. Theirs is the divine glory, the covenants, the receiving of the law, the temple worship, and the promises. Theirs are the patriarchs. And from them is traced the human ancestry of the Messiah, who is God over all, forever praise. Amen. Paul is somewhat baffled because they were a part of God's plan from the beginning. They had everything that they needed to experience Jesus to recognize him when he came. In fact, God made it so clear. He laid it out, gave them insight and knowledge to the Messiah long before anybody else even had a clue in the hopes that they would not miss it. And yet at the end of the day, they did. Even though God adopted them first, brought them out of Egypt, showed them his glory and said, you're my son. He said to the nation of Israel, theirs is the divine glory, like the very Shekinah glory showed up in the tabernacle as they went across the desert, the glory of God. They heard his voice, the covenants of Abraham and Jacob, like they got those before anybody else. The receiving of the law, they were there at the base of the mountain when God came on Mount Sinai and gave Moses the very law of God pinned with his finger. And when he brought him down the mountain, that was them. He did that for the Jews, the temple worship. He told them how to build a temple where that in it contained the Holy of Holies with the Ark of the Covenant and the very mercy seat of God and his glory between the cherubim, there's where all of the promises, there's where the patriarchs, there's was traced the human. Jesus was a Jew. Like he picked this nation to bring about the Messiah who is God over all. Like if anybody should have gotten this, if anybody should have recognized it, it would have been them. But they didn't. At the end of the day, they missed out on the very Messiah that God used them to bring into the world. They rejected him. And now on the whole, they're on the outside looking in, which again may cause some people to say, then did God fail? Like he did all of this and they still didn't get it? Does that mean God failed? He, he didn't feel, fulfill his promise to the nation of Israel? It what he said didn't come to pass for them. And if it didn't come to pass for them, then 
How can I be sure it'll come to pass for me? So Paul, being a smart man, he knows that people are going to have these kinds of questions. And so as he's done throughout the book of Romans, he raises the questions himself so that he can address it. And here's how he addresses it. It is not as though God's word had failed. For not all who are descended from Israel are Israel, nor because they are his descendants are they all Abraham's children. So again, Paul anticipates there are some in the church and they're looking around and they're asking, can we believe God's promises? If God failed the nation of Israel and they aren't here, and how can we trust that he'll keep his promises to us? So Paul says, no, no, no. God's word didn't fail. It, it didn't fail. And here's how we know it didn't fail. Because not all who descended from Israel are Israel. And not all who are born of Abraham's family are Abraham's children. And this is where it gets a little a little. Difficult for people to understand. He says, no, no, no. All of those promises that were talked about for Israel, that they weren't just made to every ethnic Jewish person. It wasn't just because you had Abraham's DNA. It's these promises were made for those who had Abraham's faith. And again, this is not the first time we've seen this in Romans. He already told us in Romans chapter 2. That a person is not a Jew who's just one outwardly of the flesh, nor circumcision merely outward and physical. No, a person is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is circumcision of the heart by the Spirit, not by the written code. In other words, it's not by the law that you are a child of Abraham. It's by the faith of Abraham that you are his child. It's all about what's happening on the inside. It's not what's going on on the outside. What makes you a child of the promise so what's going on on the inside? It's not about genetics. It's about faith. Let me try to draw it out for you this way. You can think about it this way. You put everybody into two groups of people. You have the Jewish people, which we'll call the nation of Israel. So that's one group of people. Everybody else makes up this other group that we call Gentiles. So you're either in one or the other, okay? This is how Scripture talks about people. You're Jewish or you're a Gentile. You're Jew or Gentile. You're of the nation of Israel or you're everybody else, okay? What Paul says is all of those promises, you thought, you thought somehow that they just applied to this national group of people, and Paul's trying to tell us, no, 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 that's not really Israel. That's not what makes up Israel. There's a third group, and the third group consists of some of these Jewish people and a lot of these Gentile people, and this is what we would call true Israel. It's made up of both Jewish people and Gentile people. And as Paul is writing it, it's a small group of Jews, mainly Gentiles. 
Now, that doesn't mean that's the way it's always going to be. But as Paul's writing this letter to the Romans, that's, this is what the New Testament church looks like. A remnant of Jews and a big chunk of Gentiles. One day that may change, but this is what Paul's writing. And what he's saying is what, those promises that God made, he didn't make to this nation called Israel. He made to this group called Israel, who are Israel, not by DNA, but by faith. That's who all these promises were made to, which is why we can be sure that God did not fail. So they're asking the question, if God made these promises, how can we be sure? He says, not all who are Israel are Israel. On the contrary, he says. And now he's going to help us to understand why it is that it's not just ethnic Jews who fill this promise. He's going to help us understand why that. It's not all Israel are Israel. No, no, no. On the contrary, it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. In other words, it's not the children of by physical descent who are God's children. No, it's not about DNA and ethnicity and family trees but it is the children of the promise who are regarded as Abraham's offspring. For this was how the promise was stated. At the appointed time, I will return and Sarah will have a son. So for us to understand this, I feel like we need to do a little bit of a, a bit of a history lesson to try to help frame this. They would have probably understood this in ways that we do not. So I need to do a little bit of a background and a history lesson what he's trying to help us understand is it's not about genetics. It's about the children of the promise. How do you become part of the children of the promise? So, history lesson. Back up. God came to a man named Abraham. He picked him. We don't know why he picked him. He just picked him. It wasn't because Abraham was better. He just picked Abraham. He said, I'm going to choose you. And so he says to Abraham, I'm going to use you, and I'm, I'm going to make you a great nation, and I'm going to Bless the entire world through you. Your offspring is, is going to come from you, a Messiah for the entire world. You're going to be the one. I choose you. Abraham got the promise. Now, who became, the, the, who, how did the promise keep moving forward? Well, God promised I'm going to send you a son. You're going to have a son. And that the promise is going to go through your son to the next generation, to the next generation. And eventually the Messiah will come. Problem is, Abraham didn't have a son. He had a wife named Sarah, but Sarah couldn't have kids. So they're like, well, how are we going to fulfill this promise if you can't have kids? I got an idea. I've got this lady over here named Hagar. How about you just sleep with her and then the promise can go through her? Sounds like a grand plan. And so Abraham and Hagar have a son named Ishmael. But God said the promise was not meant to come through Hagar. As it was written, I will come back in a year and Sarah will have a son. So eventually the promise of that son was fulfilled in Isaac, which meant that Isaac was the child of the promise, not Ishmael. Now, 
The reality is both Isaac and Ishmael are exactly the same in relation to Abraham. They are both 100% his sons. By the flesh, they are both Abraham's sons. But one is a child of the promise and one is not. So the promise then goes through Isaac. It doesn't end there. Not only that, but Rebekah's children were conceived at the same time by our father Isaac. Yet before the twins were born or had done anything good or bad, in order that God's purpose and election might stand, not by works, but by him who calls, she was told the older will serve the younger. So Isaac then has twin sons with his wife, Rebecca. It was Jacob and Esau, Jacob and Esau, Jacob and Esau. If you've been around church world, you know of Jacob and Esau, and you've always heard it said Jacob and Esau, although it should actually be said Esau and Jacob, because Esau's the older. But you've never heard anybody ever call them Esau and Jacob. Why? Because before either of them were born, before they had done anything good or bad, God decided the child of the promise is going to be Jacob. I'm going to choose Jacob. The promise is going to go through Jacob, not Esau. And thus, later on, Esau ends up giving away his birthright, and Jacob becomes the heir of promise, that the Messiah would end up coming through Jacob's family line. God decided the son of the promise would be Jacob. They're both Isaac's sons. They both had the same mom, and they were both born at the exact same time. They were both grandsons of Abraham. They both had his DNA, but one was a child of the promise, and one was not. Paul then quotes Malachi and says, just as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. There are some who look at that and would rightly say, that sounds problematic, that God would hate. To read that and think, God loved Jacob, and so he chose for him to be a child of the promise, but he hated Esau, so he wasn't. And he did this before either of them did anything good or bad. And I don't know about you, but that, that doesn't seem right to me. That doesn't sound like the father that Jesus revealed to us when he came to reveal the father. Now, again, there are some who see this different. I want to help you understand where I land. We have a tendency to look at these names like Jacob and Esau, and we think about individual people. When Malachi wrote this, these weren't people, these were nations. In fact, Rebecca was told, you have two nations warring in your, they fought the whole time she was pregnant, up until the very end. Jacob, his nation was the nation of Israel. Esau, his nation was the nation of the Edomites. And at the time when Malachi writes this line, the Edomites were trying to destroy the Israelites. What we see here. Isn't that God picked one person to be out and picked the other person to be in? What we see in this text is that God picked one who would fulfill the promise and one who would not. This wasn't about being elected or selected for salvation 
on one side and damnation on the other. That's not what's going on in this text. In fact, our text tells us exactly what the election was all about. We don't have to guess. Yet before the twins were born or done anything good or bad, in order that God's purpose in election might stand, not by works, but by him who calls, she was told the older will serve the younger. It was an election to service, not an election to salvation. It was an election of who is going to be the rightful heir of the throne of the family. Who gets to be the highest person on the pecking order in the family? And, and God said before, either did anything good or bad, I'm going to choose the younger to be the head and the younger, I'm sorry, the older to be the tail. That I'm putting one over the other. And the point is that it's not about bloodlines. It's not about heritage. It's not about natural order or customary norms. This was a decision that God made. God chose to run his promise through Jacob. Again, we keep using the word promise. What was the promise? I'm going to send a Messiah into the world to save my people from their sins. I'm going to use Abraham to do it. That was the promise. And what Paul's saying in this text is that God had a very specific route that promise was going to get fulfilled. It was going to go through Abraham, and then Isaac, and then Jacob. And then we could take it to the next level, right? There was another generation. Jacob, whose name was later called Israel, Jacob had 12 sons. So how's the promise going to get fulfilled? It would make sense, natural order, that the promise would go through Reuben. He was the oldest. He was first. But he wasn't chosen. You ask me, the one that makes the most sense would be Joseph, because Joseph was the favorite son of the favorite wife. But he wasn't chosen either. You know who got picked for the promise to be fulfilled through? Judah. The fourth son. And I don't know. You go back and read Judah's story, and you're like, why in the world would you pick him? Like, he did some shady stuff. Like, he was a, it's a little NC-17 when you read Judah's story. But yet, when we worship our Savior, we call him the Lion of the tribe of Judah. Because God picked Judah. He is the child of the promise. It ran through Judah. Now, the question we have to wrestle with is, and some would make this claim, does the fact that God chose to run this promise through one line and not the other mean that one line is saved and the other is damned? Is that what he's teaching? And I would say absolutely not. God did not damn Ishmael. In fact, God blessed Ishmael. God promised that Ishmael would be a nation unto himself that God promised that Ishmael would actually have 12 kings come from him, that he would have 12 princes in his own family tree. In fact, Ishmael was circumcised the exact same day that Abraham was as a child of the covenant. The very same day. Ishmael wasn't damned, and neither was Esau. Again, we read that God loved Jacob and he hated Esau. And we're like, oh, that doesn't sound right. But you just need to understand the same verbiage that Paul used to describe 
is said of Esau is the same thing that Jesus used to describe us. To describe our relationship with our loved ones. Do you remember when Jesus said, hey, if anyone would come after me, he must hate his father and mother, his brothers and sisters, his wife and his children, and yes, he must hate even his own life or he cannot be my disciple. The same word Paul used is the same word Jesus used. Now, does anybody think that Jesus actually literally wanted you to hate your spouse? No. He said, love your spouse and lay down your life for her. Love her like Christ loved the church. You think you want... Think God really wants you to hate your parents? No, it's one of the Ten Commandments. Honor your father and mother. You think he wants to hate your children? No. He says the whole kingdom is created for those like children. If you don't become like them, you ain't getting in. No, what we understand is this is an Aramaic idiom that says that is pointing to preference. And it's taking an, an idea and running it out to its greatest fulfillment, but it's just trying to make a rhetorical point that your love for Jesus, your allegiance to Jesus should be so far and high greater to him than than to your wife, to your kids, to your parents, that it would look like hate in comparison. And the same is true for what he's trying to say about Jacob and Esau. He didn't hate Esau. He wanted to save Esau through the Savior that would be born through his brother. And again, no one would argue, go down one more generation, that because the promise came through Judah, that somehow he must hate all of these other tribes. Nobody would make that argument. Because it's not true. This promise was about bringing about the Messiah through Abraham, through Isaac, through Jacob that would offer salvation to all of them. And remember the Great Commission? Remember the Great Commission? Go make disciples of who? Of all nations. You know who's included in all nations? The Ishmaelites. We're supposed to make disciples from their, from his family tree. The Edomites. We're supposed to go make disciples from their family tree. All nations includes all nations. This section isn't about an election to salvation. It's about an election for service that God was going to use these people to bring about his Messiah. Now, we'll talk about election to salvation next week. We're not not skipping away from that. It comes up next week. We'll come back for that conversation. It'll be even more fun than this one. The point of this section is that God's word didn't fail. That God did exactly what he said he was going to do. He brought about a savior into the world through Abraham, through Isaac, through Jacob. And that Messiah opens up for the the salvation for all who would share Abraham's faith both Jews and Gentiles alike. It's not based upon genealogy or DNA. It's by faith. We're going to pick that, we'll pick that back up next week. Here's where I want to end today. I want to begin, I want to end where we began. So go back to chapter 9, verse 1. Paul writes, I speak the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. 
My conscience confirms it through the Holy Spirit. I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart, for I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my people, those of my own race, the people of Israel. Paul is utterly broken that his people are missing in the kingdom of God in that moment because they have not surrendered to their Messiah, Jesus. He is so broken that he says, I want them to know him. I want them to love him. I want them to worship him. I want them to experience life in him. I want them to experience eternity with him. And I would be willing to take their place in hell so that they could experience Eternity in Jesus. I would go to hell if it meant they could experience life. And here's what I want for us today. I want us to walk out with that same brokenheartedness for the lost people around us. See, Paul is enduring great sorrow while many of us have never once shared a tear for the lost people around us. Paul is experiencing unceasing anguish, and far too many of us have unceasing apathy toward the lost people around us. Paul is willing to go to hell for people. Many of us aren't even willing to go across the street for people. Paul is willing to experience God's wrath we aren't experienced, we aren't willing to be, to experience being inconvenienced for people. Paul is, is willing to give up eternity. We won't give up a Saturday. Paul is willing to endure hell for people. We won't endure an awkward conversation. Paul loved lost people so much that he would lay down his life for them, not just life in this world, but life for eternity. And I want us to have that kind of attitude. Which means this. Here's my request for you. For all of those who out there heard me talk about this section and you're debating in your mind all the reasons why I'm wrong and you're right and you like to talk about predestination versus free will or Calvinism versus Arminianism, that's a fine conversation to have. Here's my request. Before you send me the email discussing the finer points of your doctrine and why I'm wrong, before you send me that email, I want you to first send me the email of all of the lists of the people you're weeping for and what you're willing to do to see them come to know Jesus as their Savior. Because frankly, no one, no one cares, no lost person cares about how great or right our doctrine is unless our doctrine calls us to lay down our life for the people around us who don't know Jesus. So let's walk out of here today asking God to do this in us for the lost people in our life. So that we're willing to give up everything so that they can have what we have in Jesus. Father, we come broken because we've missed this too. 
And I pray today that you would give us the heart of Paul that would leverage everything. We would go anywhere. We'd give up anything. We'd pay whatever. We would leverage every moment of our life to see the people around us who don't know Jesus come to know him. Make that a fire in our bones. For your glory. In the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. Amen. And thank you so much for joining us today here at the Quad City Podcast. Hey, our desire is that we would each look more and more like Jesus every day, week, month, and year. And we know that that doesn't just come from learning more about him and his word, but by actually applying it to our lives today. We hope that you take this message that you heard today and apply it to your life in a way that makes you honor him. Well, thanks again for joining us today. Be sure to download the Quad City app and we will see you again next time.